Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. Figure it out. You don't need every single thing figured out, but you need enough. So there were a lot of people that pitched me race around the world. But unlike Bert Van Munster, who was so passionate about this crazy little place I never heard of in the middle of nowhere and why this would be great television or this whatever, you know, they pitched just it's a race around the world and it's kind of like certain movies where we had races around, you know, and you there was no personal connection to it. And a lot of times I would say, you know, did you, so where have you shot outside of the United States? Well, I've never really shot outside the United States. Do you have anyone on your team who has? So they haven't figured it out. So I think it's a combination of the passion and and then having enough of the background to say, to, so I can know, okay, you can deliver what you're actually going to pitch. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Glad you could make it. Thank you for supporting the show. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for everything. Without you guys, obviously, we wouldn't be here today. And if you want to reach me, you can do so at Barry Katz on Instagram or Twitter or wherever social media is, you can follow me, leave me a message, and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. And if you want to catch the show live and you are in the New York area, we will be at the New York Comedy Festival on Wednesday night, November 6th at The Stand. You can get tickets at The Stand or the New York Comedy Festival website. Would love to see you. We got a very special guest. Would love to talk to you there, and I look forward to seeing you. All right. I'm really excited about this episode, part two of Gen Maynard, probably one of the most successful television executives in the reality space, or any space for that matter, that I've ever met in the business. And when I think about Gen, I've had so many meetings with him over the years, and I've known him for so long. And the thing that always strikes me about him is the fact that every meeting I had, it always felt like he was present. I always felt like I was an equal to every single person 
that may have pitched there. And that's really important. I think that's really important to know that when you are around people who are taking meetings with you, that you're giving them your all and you're making them feel like a million bucks. They may not be the most respected, but they're treated equally. And I always enjoyed that about those meetings. And secondly, when I think about, again, I think about a guy who, for some reason, and you can't look at it as fate or luck or anything of that nature. From the very beginning, this is a guy that aligned himself with extraordinary projects that were at the same place he was in his career. They were new. There were executives who hadn't done a lot in the business. And yet he understood and had an instinct of what was going to be successful. I mean, this is a man that was involved with green lighting Survivor, the first broadcast TV reality show. It's one thing to support a project when every other network passes, but then you got to go to the network president and the executives, Les Moonves and his team, and you got to look them in the eye and say, look, I know that you've never done a reality show on your network, and I know you have no plans for a reality show on your network, but I believe that this is going to be very successful, and I need you to put it on the air. To have the conviction of being able to do that is very, very important. So this is a guy that aligned himself to shows that became some of the, if not the most successful reality shows in the history of the world. I'm talking about America's Top Model, Amazing Race. I'm talking about Big Brother. Along with Survivor, these programs are four of the longest-running reality TV franchises in the world. And then he just keeps going, and every place he's at, he keeps doing it over and over again. He leaves CBS. He comes back to CBS. And what happens? The guy sells four straight-to-series programs including a redo of Beverly Hills 90210 with the original characters to Fox and kids say the darndest things at ABC with Tiffany Haddish. It's not a coincidence. It's not a fluke. The guy figures out a way to align himself with the things that have the best chance of winning. And then he takes them out in the world and he wins. And so if you can figure out a way on one side where whoever you meet with, you treat them like they belong, even if they don't belong, because you want people to remember you as somebody who cared. You want them to remember you as somebody who made a difference in their lives. And on the other side, once you do figure out what you're doing, Figure out how to align yourself with the best people, the best projects, the best situations, the best companies to win, and then ride that to the promised land. And if you can figure out a way to do that, I can guarantee you, you'll have the kind of career that Gen Maynard has. 
Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning nose into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Uh, undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. One of the things when you're coming up as an executive in the entertainment business, you're in the cubicle. There's a lot of people in the cubicles. There's a lot of people who want to move up just like you. There's a lot of people who are already in offices that don't want you to get an office. They don't go up to you and say, Gen, I don't want you to get an office. They might come up to you and say, hey, how you doing today, Gen? You having a good day? What are you working on? But as you're moving through the trajectory of a company, tell our audience what it's like knowing that it's almost unspoken that there's snipers all over the office building who would love to take you out and have them launch above you, even though it's a teamwork thing and everybody's talking about the teamwork. How did you navigate through the people that you perceived were trying to derail you? You know, it was, it, that's an interesting question. It's, uh, I have to think about that. There's, um, look, because I had this sort of special relationship with Les, thanks again to, this person, Anita, it made it very easy in the earlier years because people knew that Leslie supported me, so therefore they didn't sit there trying to get on my bad side. Um, NBC was a very different place because it wasn't so much me, but I was a brand new person coming in in a job that I'm sure some other people wanted. And when I first came in, I thought we were going to be able to bring our own team, and instead we stayed with the same team for a year. And by the end, I actually loved everyone. Some of them are, are really good friends of mine today. But you know, there were a few people I know for six months, I had to sit there proving myself to them. Um, for me, it's, I, I, I don't want to sound naive. I just try to do the best work I can and try to be fair. I'm, I'm shrewd enough to see who is you know, trying to play games with me or not, and I'm a pretty straight shooter and will deal with it if I can. Um, but I try not to get too paranoid by all the politics because that can just really freeze you, you know? And I, I think when we talk about that meeting with Bob Wright and why didn't I speak up in that moment, there were so many people in the room who, because Bob Wright didn't like this, were saying this is an awful, you know, whatever. And it's really a very weird experience to sit there and go, I don't think this is bad, but you're hearing so many people, including people in higher levels than you, all saying this is terrible. And then you sit there and go, am I right? Am I wrong? Or, you know, it's, it's very strange. You can watch a movie sometimes and all your friends hated it, you know, but with your friends, you can go, no, 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 I loved it for this. But when you have a lot of politics and a lot of other things at stake and they all hate it, then you're sitting here, you know, it, it's tough sometimes to keep your resolve. But that situation aside, I usually try to just pursue what I believe in. I am a straight shooter with people. And I think that's one thing that has maybe endured me to certain producers in the sense that they know that I'm, if I'm going to be behind them. I'm going to be behind them and I'm not going to be a BSer. Um, so hopefully all of that outweighs the, the inevitable disappointments, you know? And what's also fascinating about your career, you, you spent a lot of time here at CBS and you had a great relationship with Les. And then when you were at NBC, you have a guy come in 
Kevin Riley, who, for whatever reason or however it worked out, him and his team, including you, had six hit shows the first year he was there, including My Name is Earl Mm -hmm. and Heroes, which you were involved in. The guy comes in, he does the job that you're supposed to do. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to, like you say, you're supposed to make hits. Right. Six shows that were successful. That never happens. And then a year or so later, don't let the door hit you on the way out, Kevin. How do you look at that when you're an executive in this business and how do you figure out how to move forward when you see shit like that happen? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like when you're playing a game and you're not sure what the objective of the game is. And sometimes, you know, you come in into the naive point of view is let's make as many hit shows as possible and and everything should be fine. Um, But the reality is it's Survivor, you know, and Survivor is a team, you know, game. You, you're there together, winning challenges together, surviving together, and yet in the end, there can only be one winner. So, I think it's sort of unfortunate. I, I think in that sense, CBS in those early years, especially, had much more of a cohesive team sort of approach, and it was partly because there was a very strong leader at the top, and Leslie, and you knew exactly which people Leslie, you know, considered to be his people, and it all sort of follow through from there. And yet someone young at the bottom of the totem pole like me could still speak up. And I think that's a great environment. Um, I think there were political forces working against Kevin. Um, and there were certainly some working against me. There were, you know, it, it, there was a tension between studio and network and all these different kinds of, you know, group tribes, if you will, um, to use survivor terminology, where everybody's trying to figure out how to outdo each other. And I never, at that point in my career, been in a situation where you're literally having meetings to prepare for other meetings that were meant to prepare for yet another meeting. And the amount of time you spend on that was somewhat bewildering. And there are a lot of companies like that. And my hat's off to the people who maneuver those really well. But like for me, the you know, as much as I am proud of some of the stuff we did there and, and, and some of the accomplishments, it was a great learning experience, but it did make me realize how good Leslie was as a leader of this company at that time. Um, in contrast, because I was able to see it from a very different perspective. Awesome. I want to go way, way back. Okay. Take me back to where you grew up, what the dynamic was economically and socially, and what was your first inspiration to getting into this crazy business? So, um, I grew up in Pasadena. Um, My parents, um, who today are 91 and 88, um, were the hardworking, coupon-cutting, you know, S and H cream stamps. Well, you know, I I don't know about that, but but my dad literally sat there cutting all the coupons from the papers. And, um, my mom, um, is from Japan. She met, and my dad met her when he was stationed in Japan during the Korean war. Um, she certainly instilled in me work ethic, um, and school was very important and they saved their money. And, and what I, you know, I'm, it, it's, I'm so obviously you're, everyone's grateful to their parents for different reasons, but they waited 12 years before they had me as their first child because they knew they weren't economically ready to to raise a child. 
Um, and so my dad was an actor as a child and a, and a young adult. But at some point, I think my mom said, if we're going to have children, you're going to have to get serious now because it wasn't like his career took off as an actor at that point, um, even though he was uh, an understudy on Life with Father, I think, on Broadway as a, as a kid. And, he, and Aaron Spelling would cast him in regional theaters, so he had some success. Um, but he ended up loading boxes on trucks at the post office at my mom worked at Bullock's department store. Um, and I think for 12 to 13 years, they saved money, went to school at night, did all the things they could, you know, built a house, already had some of it paid off, had a nest egg, and then said, okay, now we're ready to have a child. So, so I was very lucky to have parents who thought that way. Um, and then they sent me to private school. And you know, most of my classmates came from very wealthy families. Now, private school as a young child, kindergarten through twelve, polytechnic school in Pasadena, um, and and we didn't get any scholarship or anything like that. They paid the tuition. They just, you know, it was literally twenty five, thirty percent of what my dad probably made at the time, um, and um, and they sent me there to get the education that they said I needed to have. So, well, what's interesting about you're very well educated in your youth, but you were going to a school that didn't address your most amazing talent at that time, which was, I believe, playing piano. Ah. I mean, I, I, that was another thing. My mom said, you have to do something else on the side. And I showed some interest in piano. And then the next thing I know, I was having to practice three hours a day. Um, and I was playing in competitions and performing in different situations. And winning orchestras. the competitions, right? Yeah, I won a bunch of them, too. Um, <laughs> but you know what? Piano was still secondary, second to me to school. I loved school. And so even as a senior in high school, when most kids in their second semester of senior year took three or four classes, I took seven. So I was sort of like, I don't know, maybe a glutton for punishment, but but I was up till 2 or 3 a.m. studying every night. And and that was the only scenario where I could skip practicing the pianos if I was doing school because school was still more important than than music. Um, so I, I, did, I did okay as a pianist, but it wasn't in my heart. And I think I was a very technical player near the end. Um, and so I type 140 words a minute today, thanks to that. But, um, but yeah, that was, that was sort of the thing on the side for me. Well, there was another thing that you were successful at, too, that didn't seem like it was on the side of the time. That was acting. Oh, no, not me. You never no, acted. I didn't act. You that was just my dad. That was your so dad. So my dad was cast by Aaron Spelling to be at the Dan O'Hurley Theater here in L.A. And the the cool story about that is getting to know Tori Spelling so many years later. And so when Tori comes into my office, it's like there's that sort of you know connection where I'm able to tell her, you know, my dad actually, you know, consider your dad for a short time to be kind of a mentor. And so um, it's just weird how life sometimes works out. And so keep going now. So now now you're well, you said college. inspiration. So the inspiration for television for me was um, when I was in uh, fifth grade, fourth or fifth grade. I would I started collecting the fall preview edition of TV Guide, and if you remember, TV Guide used to be sold at all the cashiers in the stores. Of course. And that fall preview edition was twice as thick and had a one-page uh, summary and picture of every new show. Um, and actually, I know you can't really see on this podcast, but. Um, Oh my God! You got the fall previews, fall preview editions, but you can see that I would literally grade every show in terms of whether I thought I would like it and whether I thought it would succeed. 
And how, and what percentage of the time were you right or were you wrong? I don't know the percentage, but I think it was pretty close. I mean, I had Simon and Simon and Falcon oh. Crest as successes. And and um, there's a exec producer named Jeffrey Kramer who has, you know, did a lot of... Um, David Kelly shows his EP and he's and we have some projects together and he was an actor back then and he'll kill me but I gave his show a three and, <laughs> and, and said it was going to fail and uh, it was a show where I think uh, it was about Frankenstein or something a half hour comedy um, and yeah it didn't do too well so. now your rating scale was one to ten yeah I, okay I, so yeah. tell me three shows from your childhood that you gave a ten to before they came out and they were a ten um, I don't know specifically ten. I do know the higher ones. Um, were, Falcon Crest was definitely one that I thought. I think I gave it a nine. Um, and Simon and Simon, I think I gave a seven. It was pretty good. Um, there, there were a couple others there that I, I think I thought the misadventures of Sheriff Lobo was going to be bigger than, than it ended up being. So, so I wasn't no. always right. But hey, everybody! I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Tell me one that you thought was going to be the worst show ever, and it became a huge hit. I don't know if there were from any. your I'd childhood. Go, I'd have to go look, look and, and study now. I'm not. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's going to be a pop quiz after this. <laughs> so you still look at the fall previews? Yeah, so really I, I still have all these fall preview guides because I would do that every single year, and then I'd compare them in the Pasadena Star News where they printed the Nielsen ratings every Tuesday. I'd go to the library and check out those ratings and so it was always in my blood and i'll tell you like when i was in high school i think junior or senior year i was a finalist in this uh, concerto competition um sponsored by 17 magazine and the top 10 i think all got to you know fly to a certain destination which in my case lucky me was right here in la um, um you got chipped to, out of your trip exactly to, and had to be there for a week which pissed me off because i preferred going to school so i didn't like that i was missing school to have to stay in a hotel in la but in the end, I finally got kicked out of the group. I think I was probably like number four or five. And so then the top three were going to play this concerto, all three movements with an orchestra one night. Um, and you were going to listen to the same concerto, all three movements played three times in one night. And all I could think is it's Wednesday night. And back then we didn't have VCRs. So you can record a TV show and Dynasty was on. And there was no way in hell I was going to miss an episode of Dynasty to listen to the same concerto played three times when I'm not even, you know, in the last last group of people to win. So that morning at breakfast, I literally went to the bathroom, put hot towels all over my head and came out and I started complaining that I was feeling really sick. And sure enough, one of the people running the thing put her hand on my head and said, oh, my God, you're really warm burning up. And I kept that going so that it was so believable by the time that evening came around that I was so sick that I would have to stay in the hotel and not 
go go there. And I was like so thrilled that it was convincing and I managed to stay. Everyone else had to go listen to the same dumb concerto played three times and I got to watch Dynasty. So I don't know if at that, that point in my life I knew I would end up in television, but it's probably somewhat telling in hindsight. Awesome. And just take our audience through how you figured out how to get your first job in television. Well, so I was a late starter. I didn't get into television until I was about 27, maybe, around there. And I was in publishing for four and a half, five years after college. Um, but at a certain point, I realized that publishing was just a job and that every Sunday I was buying the weekly variety that they sold in Boston, where I lived. Um, and not buying Publishers Weekly. Um, and so... Now, why did you live in Boston, then? Well, I went to college there, and then I went to... You went uh, to Harvard I went College. to Harvard, and then afterwards I worked at Houghton Mifflin Company in Boston. I was publisher of the Let's Go Travel Guides while I was in college, so it made sense to go into publishing. Um, and I had a really good job. You know, I had a beautiful apartment on Long Wharf overlooking the water, so coming out of college, you think, you know, you're hot shit living in a really exclusive area and a, and a cool job. but. There was no passion in it. I mean, I have friends from today, still today from that time in my life, but it was just a job. Um, and I finally thought, you know what, I, television's the thing I keep thinking about. You know, I was grading them in the fall preview edition, and in high school I'd write papers on television, in college I wrote papers. So why am I not going into this world? And I think a little bit went back to the days in private school where, again, my parents sent me to this private school where I went to school with a lot of rich kids. and. And Stephen Cannell, his son was in my class, um, and there were some other showbiz people there. Um, Will and Christopher from uh, Mash, his son was in my class, but they were sort of this other group of people that I didn't necessarily socially, you know, interact with, you know, outside of school. I remember Stephen Cannell so, had the title card at the end with the typewriter. Correct, out. exactly. You know, um, so I don't think I ever thought at that point that Hollywood is me because I was like not part of the crowd, if you will. But later on, I decided, you know what? That that's what I want to do. So I basically um, would write letters to people in the business. Um, I always tell young people today, like, it's you should write letters where you're asking for advice, not saying I'm looking for a job, because you'll just get the little index card in the mail saying we'll keep your resume in file, which is usually the garbage can. But if you say I'm looking for advice and you can tell a good story about yourself concisely, some people might meet you. And I was lucky. I, I'd say one out of three people agreed to talk to me or meet with me. How did you instinctively know to not ask for a job and to write? I think I just read a lot of different, you know, back then there was no internet. So I would go to the library and read different things. Also at Harvard, they had a binder of alums who would be willing to talk. I, ironically, the alums were the least helpful people. Um, it was the people who didn't go to Harvard who still met with you that went out of their way to really do stuff. But I still got some good advice. So I'm sure someone probably said something. And it's funny because my very first um, informational interview ever um, in person here was with Kevin Riley who was head of drama at NBC. And so, you know, the fact that I would go and become his number two at NBC, you know, 10 or 12 years later, whatever, whatever it was, um, stemmed a little bit from, I understand someone who recommended me to him said, he always remembered this insignificant thing I did for him many years ago. And it was because every time I bumped into him, I always said, you were my first meeting, you know? Um, 
so it's funny how things again always somehow come full circle and that first meeting he hired you no that first meeting he gave me advice which honestly why and i've said this to him it was it was advice that fed my ego but it wasn't the best advice because he told me i was smart enough to skip the assistant ranks which was a mistake um and i'm glad i did do the assistant ranks but obviously he's sitting thinking oh i can try to become an executive without having to do the assistant thing um and and i think that was a mistake but, you know, mostly what I tell people is when you get those advice meetings, your goal is to leave with the name of one or two other people to meet with afterwards. And they all know you're looking for a job, and hopefully at some point you'll be in the right place in the right time. But the reality is you need to get to know these people, and the fact that you're doing it will impress someone, you know, when they are looking for, 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 for to hire someone. So um, the first job was how actually, many interviews before so you So I got... flew back and forth from Boston three times to meet people, and then finally I said, I'm going to meet. And it was the weirdest thing. I wrote someone who's head of production at ABC Productions, but it was actually physical production, which I didn't even realize at the time what the difference was. And a coordinator working under him took a liking to me on the phone for some reason and said, why don't you call me every week and ask if there are any jobs, I'll let you know what's in the listings. So I did that for a while, and I, after a while, it was like it was almost like, Look, I'm half Japanese, and that's the weird thing. It's like it's very antithetical to someone from a Japanese culture to call people and harass them and say, can I come see you? Can you do this for me? So I had to get over that. But after doing this for about 10 weeks with him, I finally thought, okay, he must be sick of me and, and wishing he never offered this. So I didn't call him for a few weeks, figuring I would call him once I moved to LA, which I was going to do shortly. And the Friday before the Monday that I was flying out here, he called me and said, did you find a job? How can we stop calling? And I said, well, no, I was going to call you next week. I just thought it was bothering you. He said, well, there's a job in post-production opening. Do you want an interview? And the thing is, I didn't know what post-production even meant. But I said, sure. And so I flew Monday, interviewed Tuesday, got the job. And then I was a post-production assistant, you know, 27-year-old with a 22-year-old office mate. It's a little humbling at the time, $400 a week. But that was my step into ABC Productions, where I started to read scripts for Gene Stein, who was head of comedy, or Steve McPherson, who was head of drama. And, and I would read scripts for people at other companies at night. And, and to come full circle, and, yeah, Steve and, McPherson was actually the person who actually was involved with CSI. That's right. And ABC and ABC Productions had it, and they let it go both sides let it go to cbs absolutely yeah it's a small world so so that's how i sort of got in but i was reading scripts left and right and i went up for junior executive jobs trying to skip the assistant part like kevin told me i could and five times it came down to me and one other person and the other person was usually someone already at that company and so that happened at CBS, where someone already at CBS got it. But Gene Stein, who was then at CBS, said, look, we're giving it to this person, but why don't you come and be my assistant and get in? Because you know I'm not going to be hard to work for. You know, I'm not demanding of assistant, you know? And that way you'll be in. So I figured at that point I would, and I did that. And I think it was, it was less than a year later that I got the, the first junior executive job. So. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, 
and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Hey everybody, and I wanted to thank some of the sponsors on the podcast, starting with AquaTrue. If you haven't bought this countertop water purification system, you have to do so. It's incredible. It turns tap water into your favorite bottled water instantly. It saves you thousands and thousands of dollars. It gets rid of all those plastic bottles that you have in your trash. Thousands and thousands of listeners have bought these. Everybody loves it. Not one complaint. It's incredible. I haven't bought a bottle of water in years since I got this, and you won't either. And if you go right now to industrystandardwater.com and type in the promo code Barry, you'll immediately get a $100 discount. A $100 discount and start enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever had. I guarantee it. Lastly, the air doctor. I don't know what the air inside your house is like but the air inside my house it feels heavy at times before I got this product and now it got rid of all the bad air in my house the dust the pet hair the pollen it just gets rid of all the contaminants circulating through your home and for me when I got this product it was amazing the difference that I found in the air in my house and it's normally six hundred dollars and you can check Amazon right now and you'll see but for all of you listening today I can offer you $300 off $300 just go to airdoctorpro.com and type in the promo code Barry that's airdoctorpro.com promo code Barry and save $300 and get rid of all the bad toxins in your house and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world Six degrees of separation. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention a few names. I want you to tell me what comes to mind. Okay. Could be anything. Could sure. be a sentence, a few words. It could be a story. All right. Jeff Probst. So Jeff Probst um, uh, had hosted a, a show on VH1, I believe, at the time that we saw when we were trying to figure out who was going to be the host of Survivor. Um, and, you know, this is a brand new show, and I think we were very lucky to hit the bullseye and get the perfect person. Um, I would say what what was great about Jeff that maybe you didn't know you were going to get is that he's part therapist in a way. Um, to be a host of that show, you have to be fascinated in the way that people think, behave, and deal with each other. And he brought that point of view um, in a way that it has totally enhanced that property for years. And obviously, he's an exec producer on it now and very involved in you know, figuring out how to keep the game fresh. And he's done an amazing job. Julie Chen. Um, 
Julie, you know, it's funny, Julie was with CBS News at the time when we, when we put her on to Big Brother, and one of the reasons um, we put Julie there was because we wanted to make sure that this show had a certain degree of class. Um, if you had someone credible coming from news, it was going to play differently than, it could have been a, just a really trashy sort of, you know, cheap show um, that might have been done on a different network. Um, and, and so she brought this class and poise to it that I think elevated the show. But the thing that I love about Julie um, is that it's amazing how calm she stays when you're on live television in front of millions of people and something insane is going on um, or, or crazy or unexpected is happening. And on that show, unlike most live shows, you know, you have reality, you have game, you have tape packages, you know, you have a bunch of different stuff and you have a bunch of people in the house. I don't want to, I mean, a couple, some of them are really terrific, smart people, and then you'll always have a couple of idiots there who will do some idiotic thing on live television, and you have to be able to deal with it and play with it. And Julie is so, like, poised being able to do that no matter what the pressures were, and to do that live show every every week, my heart would pound, you know, with excitement, and you'd be relieved once it, went, once it was over and done. But the fact that she was, um, she, she's in charge of it, I think, made it so much more comfortable and easy, easy for me as an executive, uh, knowing we'll be okay. Jason Priestley. So Jason, um, I got to know because we did this uh, new reboot of Beverly Hills 90210 that's currently on the air at Fox. And that, by the way, I'll say what I love about that show is we are doing something different. You know, it would have been very easy to do the version where they're all parents and their kids are going to West Beverly Hills High and, and it's just you know, another sort of scripted show, um, you know, many years later about these characters. And instead, we ended up um, doing a show where it's fully scripted, but they're playing themselves. And it's a new soap opera with a little bit of a comedic tone to it, built around their characters, their personas, and their real lives. And part of the fun of watching the show is trying to figure out what's real and what's not, because a lot of it's inspired by reality. Some of it is very real, some of it's exaggerated, and some of it's total BS. But it's this hodgepodge of different stuff, which is very much what you know these these actors grew up dealing with in the tabloids. You know what's real, what's not, and what have you. And if you think about how they pre-existed the internet and yet are so intimately known by people across the world, you know, you realize like what what pool they have. So so that that's that show. And as far as Jason is concerned, I think he was uh, one of the last ones to sign on to the show because I think he really wanted to think carefully about what is this show and, and how it's going to work. But he ended up um, not only being terrific on camera, he directed um, the third episode and did a great job and has been a total consummate professional to work with. Amazing Race. So Amazing Race was the, um, I'm sorry, Amazing Race was the, uh, um, this, well, Big Brother and Big Brother and Survivor debuted the first year, and Amazing Race was one or two years later. Um, that show was, in some ways, the most thrilling show to help produce, and also sort of one of the craziest shows uh, to do. Um, what I loved about the show is everybody thinks it's a travel show and to me when I think of that three to five minute pitch it's not a travel show but it wasn't pitched this way this this was my interpretation of it which is that it's the impact of it's about the impact of sleep deprivation and exhaustion on pairs of people whose relationships we empathize with mother daughter best friends husband wife divorced couple what have you. That's fundamentally what the show is about, and that's why I think everybody across the country can relate to them. The travel is sort of the, the secondary, it's the frosting on the cake. Um, 
But I think figuring out that show and figuring out how to tell these stories, how do you tell a story where you're tracking all these teams racing and you have to know if this team was behind this team, how do they get ahead? Even though it might not have been that interesting, but it, it needs to make sense. And then you're trying to tell these personal stories that really are what engage the viewers at the same time. Um, and in post-production, the first season, it took a lot of work and a lot of hours in the edit bay to sit there and figure it out. But... You know, I'm very proud of that show, and and Bert Van Munster, who runs the show, um, I think had the vision for for what craziness you can get out of traveling. And what I love about him is that all these years later, he's still just as excited about every location and every idea as he was that first season. Tyra Banks and America's top model. Um, I love Tyra. She is the she's such a professional, but she's really a businesswoman. Um, you know, she's obviously great modeling background, great talent on camera and all that. Um, had never done reality shows, um, certainly like that beforehand, um, and was a really, really fast learner. Um, and I think ended up being really key to figuring out the vision of the show. Anyone could have done a modeling show, but that show was Tyra's vision as to what modeling was about, who models are. Um, and it was just a very different um, way into the show that I think is what made it resonate than, than the modeling show that anyone else would have come up with. So, Your proudest moment in show business? I don't know. I mean, it's easy to say, you know, it's easy to say Survivor and Amazing Race and name all the hit shows. But I think the thing that I'm probably most proud of is, is being able to give certain young people the opportunity to live out this fantasy of being in television the way other people gave it to me. Um, you know, Sean, my assistant, I think is amazing. You know, I love like mentoring people who are smart and have an excitement about television um, and being able to see a lot of people who are executive producers today on reality shows who were once my intern or or once someone I gave a shot to as a PA or, or, or an associate producer somewhere. Um, that probably is the thing that personally resonates the most. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. So I think that when I left, when I left um, CBS, this is my third time back at CBS. When I left the second time, I, I, was, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do next. So I was sort of in a bit of transition. Um, and Anita, my mentor, had told me when I first got promoted to manager of drama development way back when, she put her arm around me in the bullpen at Television City. And she said, look at all these people. This is the last time you're going to see them for exactly who they are until you leave the executive ranks. And what she meant by that, and I know it sounds jaded, but it's somewhat true, is that you know when you're an executive, you get amazing Christmas gifts. You know everyone is like so nice to you, but you really don't know who necessarily who your real friends are, because at that point they all kind of want something too. And it doesn't mean that there aren't real friends. It's just it's easy to sometimes mistake some people. So when I left, I was aware that I probably was going to have some discoveries. And the good news is there were some people who I honestly don't know what I ever did, but they were better friends to me than I ever deserved. Um, but you know, as you expect, there's going to be a couple disappointments, and it's always a couple people that you least think are going to be the people. So I think that probably was you know for a while really bothering bothersome to me because you question am i not a good judge of character like how could i be you know um but you get over it and 
I think the most important thing is is not to become jaded that you don't trust people in the future. Like I refuse to go through this career and not be able to have a good time and believe that these people that I'm choosing as my friends or who seem to have chosen me, you know, aren't for real. Like I'm hopeful that 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 doesn't happen again. Um, but I know some people that went through that too, and they've had a tough time. I know someone even today who's having a tough time with that, and. It's very easy to get jaded and sort of just throw your hands up, and I think it's just part of life. You have to move on, move, move on, and somehow deal with it. So, last question: What advice do you have for the young person growing up in a small town, looking through the digital TV guide preview, <laughs> grading everything, trying to figure out how to get through high school and college, and get in the position to? have the kind of extraordinary career that you've had and how do they get to the point where they have it? Um, I think they need to figure out whether it's this business or any other business, what do they truly love doing? I think I have a lot of friends who are very successful as lawyers and doctors and what have you. And a lot of them say, you know, again, like we have no complaints. We've lived good lives. We've had make a lot of money, you know, have family, everything. They're fine. But we never loved our jobs the way you love yours. And they never found it. Um, and that sort of like, I think, is sometimes tough for a young kid to consider because depending on your background, either you don't have any mentors who can help be sort of role models to get you there, or sometimes you do, but they have agendas of their own. They want, you're going to be a doctor. You're going to be this, you know? And I think it's really important, no matter what age you're at, that you find, that you literally sit there and go, what do I love doing? And sometimes something as stupid as, I love watching TV, which most people kind of roll their eyes at and think, like, okay, you know, that's not a feature. That might actually be your feature. And maybe, you know, if it's something that you're really passionate about. So if a kid is really passionate about television, I would encourage him to read everything. And I think the other thing I would say is don't let anyone get in the way of, you know, allowing you to believe that you can have a future. One person in my informational interviews back then I did meet with literally looked at my resume, which at the time said I was in publishing, you know, and said, honestly, if you were to succeed in this business, you would have already shown all the signs of doing so. But you didn't do this. You didn't do that. You didn't, I don't know. Maybe you can go help edit a newsletter at Disney. You know, and I, I still remember who that person is, and I see his name every now and then. And, you know, and I remember Stephen Cannell actually once said that there was someone who said to him, you don't have what it takes. And many years later, that person met with Stephen Cannell, not remembering he had said that once Cannell was very successful. And, and Stephen said to him, you know, I want to remind you, this is what you said. I'm going to help you and I'm not going to hold it against you, but you have to promise you're never going to say that again to someone else. So. I think to any kid out there, no matter how foreign this might seem, if this is your passion, like read a lot, read who the people are, don't be scared to reach out. There was a kid, um, I love to tell the story, um, who back when I was, uh, um, it was the fourth, fifth year of Survivor, and we were shooting the finale in Central Park. Um, 
and this little kid, he was like not not too tall, and this girl came up, and they were begging for tickets, and they came from uh, I think Long Island or some some distance, and it was like eleven o'clock at night. We were rehearsing for the next day, and they saw Mark Burnett, and this kid goes up and says, "Mr. Burnett," and I'm like looking like what kid knows like who the executive producer is just by sight, you know? He's very articulate, and he's like wants the ticket. And Mark gives him this whole speech about you know how if you want something bad enough, you'll figure out how to get it, and then he walks off. It doesn't give them any tickets. And so the kid looked kind of bewildered, and then he comes to me and says, do you know anything? Is there a way I can? And I was like, you know, I might have a couple friends tomorrow not show up, so call me at 2 o'clock, and I'll tell you if they're not coming. You can have 2 o'clock, like literally on the second, you know, he calls. He comes in. He, you know, sits with my friends, has a good time, even goes to the party later that night. And then I figure that's it, you know. So next week, I get an email from him. And our email addresses back then were like gen.maynard at tvc.cbs.com. So you had to ask around to get the email address. It wasn't an obvious thing. And I get an email from him saying, you know, you're really nice and I love television. Can I write you from time to time if I have questions because, you know, you're easy to talk or something like that. And I said, sure, if you ever have notes on Survivor, please feel free to send them. So the following week, I get five pages, single space type notes about the finale of what was good and what wasn't. And honestly, they were better notes than a lot of grown-up executives would have given me. And so from there, we formed this relationship where he started watching tapes for me and doing stuff while he was in high school, and I'd pay him 50 bucks a tape, you know, um, and if it was something he thought was good, then I'd watch it. Um, And then he ended up working on Survivor in the games department, and later on in the games department at Big Brother. Um, And when he graduated, and I wrote his letter of recommendation to Harvard, he got in, and then when he graduated, I hired him as a manager of alternative programming um, at CBS straight out of college. But again, that's a kid that did all the right things, you know, way back when and had the passion. And, you know, that's the part that I, I, I sometimes miss. I wish I saw more of it, but sometimes I think people are a little timid. So if you're out there in Iowa or wherever it is and, and you really want to be in this business, um, do your research. There's a lot you can figure out from the internet and from books, but then, you know, don't be scared to reach out and don't let people tell you no. Could you give advice to people who are coming in, to people like you to pitch, 30 seconds to a minute, advice to anybody pitching to be successful and what not to do not to be successful? Come in and tell me why you're excited about this show. Whether if you're a writer, then why are you excited to tell this story? If you're pitching a game show or a reality show, why does this show excite you? Too many people come in pitching shows they think they're supposed to pitch, and you don't get any passion. Passion is such a big part of a pitch, um, and I would say that's probably half of it. And then the other half is figure it out. You don't need every single thing figured out, but you need enough. So there were a lot of people that pitched me race around the world. But unlike Bert Van Munster, who was so passionate about this crazy little place I never heard of in the middle of nowhere and why this would be great television or this whatever, you know, they pitched just it's a race around the world and it's kind of like certain movies where we had races around, you know, and you there was no personal connection to it. And a lot of times I would say, you know, so where have you shot outside of the United States? Well, I've never really shot outside the United States. Do you have anyone on your team rest? So they haven't figured it out. So I think it's a combination of the passion and and then having enough of the background to say, to, so I can know, okay, you can deliver what you're actually going to pitch. Um, I think it's important also to know the audience that you're pitching to. So 
too many people, I think, for broadcast now are pitching cable-like shows, um, which is to say they're not thinking about the fact that a broadcast show that's successful has to get people from all 50 states. And you may not like Trump voters, but they're a huge part of the potential audience. So alienating them is just silly because all you're doing is, is killing your killing your ratings. And I think there's a lot of stories that could be told that could bring people together and, and expose people to different kinds of people in a really good way. Um, and so for me, it, it, it's how do you tell show, stories for an audience that that network is seeking and for a broadcast i would say think about why is this show going to be just as interesting to someone on wall street as it is to a farmer or or just as interesting to an older and a, and a younger person um, and for other networks that are smaller know who their audience is and make sure that when you pitch this show and your passion that your part of your passion is the excitement for their audience to respond positively to to what the show that you want to produce um if that passion can come across and you can say why this story is exciting in in the first few minutes then i'm probably with you for the rest of the pitch but the last thing i'll say is don't go on too long like if the person is really enjoying the pitch and 20 25 minutes go on that's long enough at some point you can only start talking yourself out of the thing and you can you can sense read the room you can tell when someone is starting to kind of like get antsy and fidgety and what have you like don't go on longer than you need to the worst thing is when someone says okay i get it's a great pitch and then someone else starts speaking and you're just like they just said it's a great pitch and now you're saying things that they you know they don't so listen to the room and and do that there's a lot of other stuff but passion and and doing your homework and knowing the audience are probably the main thing again this has been incredible i will remember this day for the rest of my life this is an amazing interview and i'm not saying this to just i'm saying this truthfully this is so inspirational thank you so much i really really appreciate it thank you okay i'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message and one of these people will be a lucky winner and they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on Max Haha, May 31st, 2019. Heading reads, found a secret, five stars. They wrote, I feel like this is a podcast made especially for me. Stand up writing, acting, and developing. It's a one-stop shop for me. I love his guests and Barry's always positive attitude. I get more from this podcast than some of the classes I've been taking. Keep them coming, Barry, and thank you for doing this. Oh, wow. Thank you so much, Max. Ha ha. You are a winner. And that wraps up our podcast. I just wanted to thank my incredible partners, starting with AquaTrue, the revolutionary miniature countertop water purification system that works straight out of the box. Plug it in, fill it with tap water, and immediately turn your faucet into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You can get $100 off when you go to industrystandardwater.com and just type in the promo code Barry and start enjoying the best 
water you've ever had and never buy another bottle of water again. And I Killed JFK, the groundbreaking film about the only living person who admitted to killing Kennedy. Go to IKilledJFK.com, buy the film and the rare interviews with five of the last living experts, and I guarantee it'll change your mind about what happened that day. And the Air Doctor, the innovative portable air purification system which will change your overall quality of life. It instantly removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and other contaminants circulating in your home. Normally $600, and if you don't believe me, check Amazon right now. But for a limited time, I can offer you 50% off. That's a $300 savings. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. And here's a preview of the next very special episode. Gary Goldman. Get on stage every night and record your set and listen to it and write it down and um and improve it and uh rinse wash repeat just keep doing that as always this has been industry standard with me barry katz and if you like the show tell all your friends and if you don't like the show tell all your friends you get out the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support and have a great day.